book of Joel is in between Hosea, and your Bible's probably turned right to Hosea because we've been in there for a while. And in between Hosea and Amos is this little book, little bitty book, three chapters. You might wonder why we would even cover a little book like this of three chapters. I like what J. Vernon McGee has to say about the book of Joel. He says you might, uh, it might be a very, not, not be a very big book. It only contains three chapters. However, this little book is like an atom bomb, potent and powerful. I agree with that 100%. You, you, some uh, passages in here that are quoted in the New Testament, uh, the the main message is the theme of the Lord, or, I mean the day of the Lord, uh, and uh, we'll be looking at that. Uh, uh, he mentions it several times in the book of Joel. We'll be looking at that. In fact, we'll go through those passages in just a minute. Uh, it's pretty obvious where the book gets its name. We'll do a little bit of introduction here, but you look at the first verse, it says, the word of the Lord came to Joel, who, Joel, or the author of of uh, the book, uh, the son of Pethuel. Um, uh, the name Joel is pretty easy to figure out. You don't have to be a Hebrew student to figure that name out. But you, you, whenever you see the, the Joe there, what's not J-O-E, but J-O, who's that referring to? Jehovah. And then you see the L, who's that referring to? God. So it's very simply, uh, his name means uh, Jehovah is God. And that's a pretty appropriate name for this book because it's very important uh, in the message of Joel that you realize that Jehovah is God because he's going to predict some pretty dark times and some pretty bright times that are coming upon the earth. But, but the dark times will be for those whose God is not uh, Jehovah and the great times and the bright times will be for those whose God is Jehovah. Now, conservative scholars date this book somewhere around the middle of the ninth century when Joash was uh, king of Judah, which, and that's interesting because that would make Joel a contemporary of Elijah and Elijah uh, in the northern kingdom. So Joel was prophesying in the southern kingdom of Judah at the same time those mighty men of God, uh, Elijah and Elisha, were prophesying and preaching in the, in the northern kingdom. Uh, and apparently the setting for this book uh, is this great plague of locusts or grasshoppers that have come upon the land. I, you know, he's going to tell us that, man, it's, just, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to the nation of Israel up into the point. And, and, but what, Joe, what Joel's doing in talking about this plague He's going to be talking about how it foreshadows an even darker day when, uh, uh, when, that we know as the day of the Lord. And he mentions the day of the Lord five times in this book, at least five times. But let me show you a few of those. Go, go to chapter number one and look it down at verse number uh, 15. He says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. It is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of God. Then look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. 
let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. For it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will be, now will there ever be any such after them. And he's going to talk about that plague in the same way, how it's going to be greater than anything, uh, or it is as great as anything the Israelites have ever seen. He says what's coming after that, the day of the Lord, is going to even be worse. Uh, we know it as, as the beginning of the day of the Lord is the great tribulation. And then he says, he says even for many successive generations, forever they'll talk about the day of the Lord. Then in uh, verse number 10, he says the earthquakes before them, uh, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars distinguish, uh, diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? All right, and then you go to chapter 2, staying in chapter 2, go all the way to verse 30. And you can see he's talking about the day of the Lord a lot in this little book. He says in verse number 30, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. There he calls it awesome. And then all the way to chapter 3, verse uh, uh, beginning at verse 14, we'll read there. He says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. I'm talking about Armageddon. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord will roar from Zion and, and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heaven and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people. Uh, Jehovah is God. He will be their God. If Jehovah is your God, you're going to be all right. And the strength of the children of Israel. Now, just so you realize that the day of the Lord is not all bad. In fact, the day of the Lord, for the most part, is a very wonderful day. It's a great day. Look at the last, uh, look at a couple more verses there. Uh, verse number 17 and 18 of chapter 3. He says, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in, in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy once the Lord is there. And no alien shall ever pass through her again. And it shall come to no army, no foreign armies will ever pass through her again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine and the hills shall flow with milk and the, and the, and the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and the water and water the valley of Achaesus. So five times in this book, Joel mentions the day of the Lord. Well, what's, what's the day of the Lord? I mean, when we think of the day of the Lord, I, I think usually we think of what? What comes to mind first of all? The great tribulation. But that's only the beginning of the day of the Lord. If you remember, you know, in, in any kind of background study you've done on, 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 on the Israelites, when does their day begin? In God's eyes, when does the day always begin? It get, begins at evening. Remember in Genesis, uh, the first day was evening and then the morning. Uh, so it begins at night. And I think there's a, there's a prophetic picture there in the Hebrew day for, for not only the great tribulation, but really for a lot of things that God does. Because a lot of times when God does his work, before he does his work, what comes first? 
darkness, some very dark days. And maybe that might encourage you if you're going through a dark period right now. Hey, on the other side of that darkness, there's going to be light. And what's the light? And in in, when we're talking about the day of the Lord, what's, what, what's the light? Well, the light is, begins when Jesus returns to this earth. And after he returns to this earth, we go into the millennium where we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. That's the day. That's the day. I don't know about you. I'm longing for that day. But before we get to that day, we've got to go through the night. Now, I, I'm not going to be here for the night, but this earth is going to go through the night. And uh, the night is the great tribulation. And then, and then uh, uh, we will go through the millennium. And from that point, there'll be one more night where there's a rebellion of Satan and the nations will rebel against God. It'll be a really, really short night, just like that. And then we will go into eternity where we will live with the Lord in absolute bliss forever and ever and ever. Now, when Joel was writing this, it was, I mean, he was looking at events a long way out, long way out from the time in which he lived. Uh, A lot had to happen before uh, the day of the Lord came. Or would come. It hasn't come yet. We haven't reached the day of the Lord yet. But but so what were some of the events that were going to take place? Well, in 586, he's writing around 850 BC. In 586 BC, uh, the uh, nation, the southern kingdom, in 721 BC, the northern kingdom would go into captivity. We talked about that when we were in the book of Hosea. But the southern kingdom wouldn't go into captivity until 586 BC. And then almost a thousand years after Joel speaks these words, the Lord comes to this earth in in Bethlehem as a little baby to save us from our sins. And he dies on a cross. And then in 70 AD, the nation of Israel is, or Jerusalem is destroyed and all of Israel is taken into captivity and they're scattered out all over the world. And they have been scattered out all over the world until the events are being set up for the day of the Lord. And in 1949, they began to be brought back into that land. And so I believe we're rapidly approaching that coming night, that great tribulation, because the only thing that had to happen, and we'll see from the other prophets that we look at, the only thing that had to happen before the Lord would return would be the regathering of the nation uh, and actually, if the Lord had wanted to return before that, he could have. And in fact, if you, when you look at John, and we've been looking at John and Peter, in those books, they acted as if he could come at any moment, and he could have. And then the great tribulation could have taken place later on. But we have to be really getting close because all the, the stage is set for that night. And before that night comes, we're going to be uh, raptured out of here. And, that, and, and so in 1949, when that nation was was formed again, or, and they began to gather back in that land, uh, the clock really started ticking um, uh, towards uh, this day of the Lord when Jesus will return. And, and now, we're, what stage are we in now? We're in the times of the Gentiles. That's the mystery that Paul spoke of. The prophets, the prophets never said anything about the church age, but they alluded to it. They alluded to this period of time when Gentiles would come to the Lord before the Great Tribulation. What do we call that? We call that 
the time of the Gentiles, we call it the church age. And that's the age that we're in right now. Now, my question is, man, how could Joel know all of this? I mean, here he is back in 850 B.C., and he's writing about something that hasn't even happened yet in our day. I mean, how could he know about all of this? Well, let me tell you how he could know about all of this, because the Lord is the one who told him. The Lord is the one who spoke through Joel. Let me show you an interesting passage over in the, the book of Acts. Go with me over to Acts for a minute. Go with me to Acts chapter 15. And you remember at the Jerusalem Council, when they were trying to figure out what they were going to do with the Gentiles. You know, here was the Gentiles. I mean, are we going to put them under law like we're under law? I mean, is that, is that what we're supposed to do? Are they supposed to be part of, under the Mosaic law? And they, were, they had this great council. Paul was there, and all of these church fathers were there. And, and uh, remember what James says. If you go to chapter 15 of Acts, he says, beginning down in verse number 15, he says, and with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this... I will return and rebuild after this. After what? After the church age. That's exactly right, because Simon had come there, and Simon had told about what had happened at Cornelius' house, and all those Gentiles had gotten saved. So back up to verse number 14. I should have read that first. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And I think Paul verified that or ratified that and then he says after this i will return after the age of the gentiles i will return and build rebuild the tabernacle of david which has fallen down and and i will rebuild it in ruins it i will rebuild its ruins and i will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the lord he's talking about the millennial temple right there and even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. Now watch this part. Who does all these things? Who does all these things? I mean, if you don't like God's plan, I mean, let, me, let me give you a word, tough. It doesn't matter if you don't like God's plan. If you don't like his timing, let me give you another word, tough. He's, he does all things as he pleases, when he pleases. And so uh, he, he's the creator of the universe. Uh, he's the one who has the plan that was laid before the foundation of the world. And so everything's going to be done in his time, his way. But how did he know all of this? I mean, how did Joel know all this? How did God know all of this? Because God is omniscient. Look at the very next verse in, in Acts 15. This is an absolutely amazing verse right here. Known to God from eternity are all, what's all mean in the Greek? All his works. How does God know all his works for eternity? Well, there's two ways to look at it. One, God can make anything happen he wants to happen. The other way is, and this is beyond our capacity to understand, but the other way is that God is in eternity. He is not bound by eternity. Time. Remember what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, what, what has happened already is when it comes to God? And that's exactly what, what James is saying right here. Uh, known to God from eternity are all his works. He already has seen all of these things take place. 
He's already seen you glorified if you're a born-again believer. If you're going to hell, he's already seen you in hell. And, and all of these things he sees, he still gives us all our choices and things still play out day to day by, based upon our choices. But God has seen it all and God directs it all. All things, he directs all things. And so, uh, uh, you know, we, that's how Joel could understand. Uh, I don't think he understood anything that he, any of these things that he said, but that's how Joel could make these prophecies because they were being made through him by the omniscient Lord. All right, now, that's what makes, for me, the book of Joel, the book of Hosea, the book of Amos, I mean, all the prophets. I mean, really, you go back to Moses. Moses was like the first prophet. You might even call Abraham a prophet. But all of these people who prophesied, what is exciting and why I want to study what they have to say is because it's like God gives us a looking glass into the future. And we can see what his plan is. He wants us to know what his plan is. You know, we've, we've been made privy to the mystery that was hidden before the ages, and that's Christ in you, your hope of glory. We know about Christ. We know who Christ is. We know why Christ came. We know about this church age. We know more than Joel. No, Joel just saw, hey, he saw somewhere way out in the future there was going to be this great tribulation and then there was going to be this millennium and then Christ was going to return. And that's what all the prophets saw. But we know even more than that. We're privy to the church age. But to look at these prophets and, and take them all together, it's just like God gives you this looking glass into the future and you can, you can see his plan uh, for... Uh, all people, and, and it's, it's, it's really exciting to, to take a look at it. And uh, even this little three-chapter book uh, will be fun to look at. Even though it'll have some discouraging things, it'll be fun to look at. So, so let's put our, get our looking glasses out, and let's head to the book of Joel and uh, pick up with me in chapter number one, verse number one. And let's read here for a second. It says, it says the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethiel, Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days? Now, here was this plague of locusts, and there had never been anything like it, nothing like it. Or even in the ages, days of your fathers, hey, you want to tell your children about this and let your children tell their children and their children another generation. I mean, this is something that needs to be spoken of forever. This great plague that took place. And what was the plague? He describes it in verse number four. What the chewing of the locusts left, the swarming locusts has eaten. What, are the swarming, what, what the swarming locusts left, the crawling locusts has eaten. And what the crawling locusts has left, the consuming locusts has eaten. So all these various waves of millions and millions of bugs came in and they ate everything that was green in sight. Sounds like Louisiana to me. I don't know about you. But we, we've got some, we got some, we don't get them by the millions, but we've got some bugs around here that can do a lot of damage. I mean, Chap can tell you about that being in the landscaping business, how much damage they can do. But Joel writes this book, and they're in the middle of this plague, and everything green is being consumed. Now, that's a problem, isn't it? What's going to follow a, a, a plague like this? There's going to be a famine. 
There's going to be there's going to be a famine for not only uh, the people but for the animals, and so they're going to you know their cattle's going to die. There's going to be all there was all sorts of problems. We we don't have a historical account of this other than what Joel gives us here, but this had to be really bad if the Lord says, "Hey, this is the worst thing that's happened." Uh, in several generations, and it's the worst thing that's going to happen for several generations. So this had to be a really, really bad plague, a historical plague. You know, we hear this all the time now. The floods we had recently were chapping and were flooded. A, a historical flood. That was a historical flood. But And, and uh, you know, I remember when I was living in New Orleans, everybody there in New Orleans, when we first got there, could tell you all about Betsy, and they would talk about Betsy all the time. I mean, that was, what, in the 50s, something like that, 60s maybe? I, I wasn't here then, but, but it, was, it was decades before that. But they, they were passing that down, the stories down from generation to generation. Well, then we had Katrina. Well, you got to believe Katrina, man, was the, like the mother of all hurricanes in New Orleans. And so they're going to be talking about that for generations after generations. I mean, it was a devastating flood. And this plague that took place in the book of Joel it's like the worst thing that ever happened. And they had some bad stuff that had happened to them up to this point. But it was like the worst thing that ever had happened to this point in the nation, of, in the southern kingdom. Now, it didn't totally destroy them. Because this was, like I say, this was around 850 uh, B.C. And they were sent into captivity for almost 300 years after that in 586 B.C. So they made it through this thing. But it was a terrible, terrible national disaster that uh, everybody knew about. And, and uh, it was, like I say, it was a historical plague. What does it remind you of? What, what plague does it remind you of? Egypt. Remember the eighth plague brought upon Egypt? Uh, it was the locust. It, 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 Moses was in charge. I mean, he was this great Israelite, and, and uh, he puts his staff, I don't know exactly how he did it. I mean, God did it, but all of these locusts came into Egypt. You remember what Moses told Pharaoh in chapter number 10 of Exodus? Listen, listen to what he said. He says, this plague will be like none, neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen since the day they were on this earth till this day. Sounds almost exactly like what uh, Joel is telling uh, the people of Israel. This thing is worse than anything you've ever seen, worse than anything your fathers have seen, worse than anything your grandchildren are ever going to see. And that's exactly what Moses told Pharaoh. You've never seen anything like this. You need to back off. You need to back off because, because uh, you don't want this to happen. It's going to be that bad. Now, that's pretty ironic, isn't it, that, that God would judge Egypt and then use that same plague to punish Israel. I mean, why do you think he did that? I mean, I think he was sending a, a message loud and clear to them that, hey, you've gone the way of the Egyptians. I mean, just as, just as they have had been st in, uh, stubbornly rebelled against Pharaoh and the Egyptians stubbornly rebelled against me, you're stubbornly rebelling against me now. And uh, just as I punished them and and try to get them to turn, I'm trying to get you to turn. I mean, that's the purpose in this plague. I mean, the purpose in the plague was that the Lord, the Lord was reaching out to the nation to get them to turn back to him. And uh, I, I think maybe it did 
stir up some revival in the land. Because again, the history of uh, Judah is pretty pretty rich uh, after this, and and uh, they had some really good kings and some revivals and some good things happened before they went into captivity. All right, then in verse number five, listen to what he says. He says, "Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and well, you drinkers of wine, because of new wine." For it has been cut off from your mouth. Now, people will run and grab this passage and say, you know, well, you people who drink wine, uh, if, you know, God's going to get you if you drink wine. That's, that's not what he's saying here at all. Uh, he's saying to all the people there, you have been ignoring your spiritual condition. You have been ignoring the spiritual condition of your nation. And uh, you've been numbing your conscience with wine. And so he, he says, hey, the wine's going to be taken away. In other words, you're, you're hiding your head in the sand, and I'm going to make you look at your situation uh, in, in an honest way and see just how far your nation has fallen. See just how far you're, you've fallen. I mean, whenever wine becomes something that, that we use to drown out our troubles, what happens? We just get more troubles, don't we? When we use it to hide our sin or to, to, to ease our conscience, sooner or later we're going to have to become an alcoholic and keep drinking, or we're going to have to get sober and we're going to realize what our, how bad our sin really was. And so what he's doing right here, here they were, they were partying and doing everything they could to just kind of ignore the situation, ignore the problem in the land, ignore the, the spiritual problem in their own lives. And God says, look, I'm sending these locusts and not only are you going to have a famine, all that wine that you use to kind of numb your conscience and to try to make you feel good when you really should be feeling bad, I'm going to take every bit of that away. And uh, that's exactly what he did. And he says in verse number six, he says, for a nation has come up against my land. And he's, he, this is a prophetic uh, verse or a phrase looking forward to the day of the great tribulation when the armies gather in Israel at Armageddon. But it's also uh, a description of the immediate uh, problem they have with these bugs that have invaded the land. Kind of like these moths that invaded Louisiana. Y'all have any problem with these moths? I thought the freeze, that cold weather would kill them. These guys are resilient. You can't get rid of them. And, and, and they're eating up the grass. They're getting in your homes. Y'all y'all, y'all have that problem? If you live anywhere outside of Lafayette, it's, they're, they're, they're really, really bad. But could you imagine millions of these things, and locusts? You look at some of these bugs they have in Louisiana and the teeth that they have on them. They, if they would blow them, like I say, you know, if they'd blow those things up the size of a dog, you would, you would, you would run from them. And, they, and all of a sudden, they got millions of them coming into the land, this army of locusts, uh, or grasshoppers, or bugs, whatever kind of, we, we, all we really can get out of the Hebrew is some kind of bug that eats grass, eats plants. It says in verse number six, for a nation has come up against my land strong and without number. You can't number the number of bugs in the land. His teeth are like the teeth of a lion, uh, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. Now you, you put a million bugs together, and that's worse than any lion. 
They can do more damage than any one lion could possibly do. And, and uh, they're fiercer than a lion. He, laid, he, he has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. I mean, I mean that's kind of what my yard looked like after these, these uh, moths got into the roots of my grass. It almost turns it not even brown. It almost turns it white because all the life of the plant is sucked out of there and, uh, as they eat the roots of your, of your grass or whatever. And that's the picture that he's painting right there. Now, then in verse number 8, and we'll finish with this verse right here. He says in verse number 8, Lament like a virgin, girded with sackcloth, for the husband of her youth. In other words, what's God, what's, what's God saying to the people of Israel? He says, I want you to feel like a virgin who's lost the husband of her youth, whose husband has either left her or he's died, and she feels absolutely terrible, and I want you to feel the pain that she feels. But the verse is rich in symbolism because remember back in Hosea, God talked about how Israel was like his virgin, how he had like his child. And, and so uh, God brings this nation out of captivity, out of Egypt. And she's like a virgin. She's a nation whose heart is, should have been solely attuned to the Lord. And so he says like, and, and, and now uh, this great plague comes upon the land. And it's as if the Lord has disappeared. And the Lord wants the nation to hurt. He wants the nation to long for him to return, even though he's there. It's in their minds when they see this great disaster taking place in their land, it's as if God has deserted them, just like maybe a husband has deserted his virgin. And, and, and he wanted them to feel this pain of what it would be like if God really did desert them. Because God knew their, their future. God knew at some point that he was going to turn his back on them. Now, he's never deserted the Israelites or the nation of Israel. And, and, and anybody that tries to tell you otherwise isn't reading the whole Bible. Because the, the nation of Israel, it, they are the apple of God's eye. They are his people. They've always been his people. But... Uh, speaking from an anthropomorphic uh, view, from our standpoint and from their standpoint, it's almost as if God did leave them. He forsook them and left them to this ravaged land, ravaged by these, these uh, locusts. And that's a picture of what's going to happen in the Great Tribulation. When we were in the book of Daniel, what happens to the nation of Israel? They come in and they're... they're, they're invaded by the Antichrist, and there's this great massacre of Israelites, and then they're invaded by these armies as the Antichrist fights against the armies of the world. And it's going to look like the Lord has forsaken them, but he hasn't forsaken them. He's, he, he, that's, hey, that, that night that's coming, we call the Great Tribulation, is followed by the breaking of the dawn when the Lord comes and he comes to his temple and he rules and reigns on this earth for a thousand years. 
And so that's what he's saying here. He's saying, I, you know, the Lord is saying to his people, I want you to suffer. I want you to feel pain. I want you to feel like you're forsaken because I want you to turn back to me. Now, would the Lord ever do that to us? Certainly he would. Certainly would. And, and, and you know, in this world, you're going to have tribulations, Jesus said. So, so I'm not trying to pick on you if you've suffered some tribulation. But as I've said in the past, whenever there's something going on in my life that I don't like, my first question is, Lord, is there something I've done? And is there something I've done to drift away from you? Are you trying to, if you're using this to try to pull me back closer? I'll, look, just end this and I'll get back closer. You don't have to do this. And then sometimes it's, you know, the Lord's growing you. And sometimes, you know, he works. He, he's always working good through our trials. But one of the reasons we do have trials is because we've drifted from the Lord. And as I said before, when we drift from the Lord, what do we drift into? We drift into sin. And when we drift into sin, then God is going to discipline us. And it might not be a plague of moss. You know, it might, be a, it might not be a plague of locusts, but there'll be something that'll come into our life where God says, I want your attention, and I want it now. I want you to feel the pain. I want you to feel forsaken. Have you ever had those, those times in your relationship with the Lord where, where things get bad, and then instead of, you know, there's times, I've had times when things were really bad, and man, I've got blessed by the Lord, and it was just, it was fantastic. It was almost like, bring it on, bring the trials on. If I can have this sort of relationship with the Lord, I'll take it any time. But then there have been those times where I've gone into some type of difficulty, and it seemed like the Lord was nowhere to be found. And that is really tough. That is really tough. But the Lord has a purpose of that. I'll tell you what it'll do if you're a child of God. And, and I think all of you have experienced this. It drives you harder than ever to, to seek the Lord. I mean, it drives you harder than ever to say, Lord, I'm going to, I mean, especially as you grow in your faith and you know you're going to come out of it. If, you, when you've, when you, if you're a new Christian, sometimes you think this is it. I'm never going to come out of this. You're going to come out of it. But when you've been through enough trials, you eventually realize, hey, I'm gonna, no matter what the trial is, there's going to be a morning coming after this night. And so you, you begin to trust the Lord. And you, and you, and you say, okay, Lord, you, you're trying to get my attention through this pain. What do I need to do? What do you want me to do? And, I, or, and then you do your best to try to get closer to the Lord. And if you seek him with all your heart, what's the Bible say? You're going to find him. And that's what God's trying to do through, through our trials. Just loving on us, getting us closer to him. What a great God, right? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you love us so much that you would even send pain into our lives in order to, to bring us closer to you. Lord, that's where we want to live. We want to live in your presence, under the shadow of your wings, Lord, where, where no harm comes to us at all. Father, we just, sure, we'll have tribulations, but, but Lord, we know that all of these things are working for our good if, we, if we're uh, your children. And we just thank you for that. We thank you for the grace we have through Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.